Good morning to all you folks joining us online, or maybe good afternoon or good evening, depending on where you might be viewing. We're glad to welcome you to our service. Grab a Bible if you've got one with you this morning, and I want you to go with me to the Gospel of Matthew. And one last time, at least in the context of this current sermon series, I want you to find Matthew chapter 10. As you know, we're working our way verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew in a sermon series called Let's Talk About Jesus. And this morning, I want to begin by asking you a question, and the question is really simple. It's, what's your definition of a great life? And don't give me the Sunday school answer. Don't even think about doing that. Don't, uh, don't tell me an answer that doesn't even remotely resemble the kind of life that you're living today. I know we're in church. I know it's a leading question, but I want you to give it some thought. What's your definition of a great life? That's a fitting question, given the fact that this weekend we are finishing up a section in Matthew's gospel that I have been calling glimpses of greatness. As you know, I've outlined the gospel of Matthew for the purpose of our study, and we're in the third section. We're at the very end of the third section. It's Matthew chapters 8, 9, and 10. I'm calling it glimpses of greatness because, and I'm sure you could say this back to me, you've heard it so many times, what we see in those chapters is Jesus doing great things and Jesus calling his followers to embrace a greater life. We've seen that call to embrace a greater life in a variety of different ways over the past several weeks, but when we get to the end of chapter 10, we see it really clearly. I mean, there's no mistaking what Jesus is calling us to do. I told you a couple of weeks ago when we began chapter 10 that chapter 10 in in Matthew's gospel marks a significant shift in the ministry of Jesus. If you're somebody who wants to know and understand the life of Christ, this is something important for you. Matthew 10 marks a shift in that we see Jesus moving from being the one who does everything. Jesus has been doing all the preaching, all the teaching, all the miracles, everything. But in Matthew 10, we see him moving from being the only one who does anything to commissioning his disciples to begin to be involved in ministry themselves, hands-on ministry themselves, in fact. Look at Matthew chapter 10 and verse 1 on the screen behind me. This is how the chapter begins. He called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. What you see next in verses 2, 3, and 4 is Matthew giving us a list of the names of the disciples. And then verse 5 says, These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. This is Jesus empowering and commissioning the 12 disciples for ministry And what we've seen over the past couple of weeks as we've worked our way through the text of Matthew chapter 10 is that he is instructing them and preparing them for what they're going to experience. And I told you from the beginning that as Jesus instructs and prepares them for ministry, he instructs and prepares and prepares us as well because everything that he says to them is applicable for us in our lives today. Now, what really stands out to me as we come to the end of Matthew chapter 10, is Jesus doubles down on this call to his followers to embrace a greater life. But honestly, the way he describes it, I'm not sure many people would ever think of what Jesus is talking about as a great life. And that shouldn't surprise us, because if you've been paying attention as we've worked our way through chapter 8, chapter 9, and now chapter 10, you've seen signs of this already. If I were to do just a little review, and you don't have to turn there with me, but I would go back to Matthew chapter 8, and I would pick it up in verse 18 where we read, 
When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. And so one day, a man comes to Jesus, and basically, in essence, he pledges his allegiance to Jesus, only to have Jesus look him right in the face and say, are you sure about that? Because as I look at you today, I'm not sure you understand everything that you're going to have to sacrifice in order to really follow me. And so then another man steps up and basically says, I'll follow you. I just can't do it right at this minute. And Jesus basically looks at him and says, that's not how it works. He doesn't give any further teaching. He doesn't give any further encouragement. He doesn't say anything like, hey, I'm, I appreciate the interest. He just basically says, that's not how it works because when it comes to following me, you have to give up everything. It's all or nothing with me. That doesn't sound like a great life. You move on from there. To Matthew chapter 9, in, in verse 9, it says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. I didn't preach the message when we came to this part of the text. I was in the Holy Land. Andrew preached this message, but he made it clear in his message that when Jesus looked at Matthew and said, Follow me, he was telling him that he needed to leave everything. Everyone say everything. Everything behind to do that. Everything. And that's what he did. In fact, in Luke's account of the same story, Luke literally writes and says about Matthew, he got up, left everything, and followed him. And if you were here that weekend, you remember Andrew told us that because of Matthew's position as a tax collector, no other disciple, no other person who followed Christ would have given up more monetarily or materially than Matthew did. He gave up everything because that's what Jesus required. And we see why that's what Jesus required in the very next text. In the very next part of Matthew, one day some disciples, some followers of John the Baptist came to Jesus and asked him this question, why don't you and your disciples fast the way that the Pharisees do and the way that we do? And Jesus seized on that to give them a teaching about living in the moment, and he used a couple of illustrations, one sewing a patch of cloth on a garment that had a hole in it, and one about putting old or new wine in old wineskins. And the message that he had for both of them is this. You need to understand that the new life that I'm offering you, the greater life that I'm calling, to you, uh, calling you to, cannot fit in the old life you've always lived. That was the point of both of those illustrations. He looked at them and said, you've got, get, you got to get rid of your old life in order to experience the new life and the greater life that I'm calling you to embrace. Then you get to Matthew chapter 10, where we've been for the last couple of weeks. And as Jesus prepares the disciples to go out and do ministry, he basically tells them, listen, prepare to be rejected and prepare to be persecuted. Now, in what world does that sound like a great life? Honestly. That doesn't sound like a great life to anyone. And so that takes me back to the question I began with. What's your definition of a great life? I know there could be a lot of answers to that question. Somebody could say, well, a great life would be a pampered life. Man, I would love a pampered life. How about you? I would love that. I think that I might be suited for that. <laughs> I would love that. Somebody might say, well, a great life is a comfortable life or a fun life or 
an, an active life or a healthy life. If you would have asked me the same question earlier in the week, if you would have asked me, Pastor, what's your definition of a great life? I would have told you my definition of a great life is a simple and an uncomplicated life. You ever feel that way? Because it seems like every day that I get up, there's some new challenge or new problem or new heartache to deal with. Sometimes I come home, I know my wife gets frustrated. Sometimes I come home from work and I just tell her. She might say, ask me a simple question about dinner or something, and I look at her and say, I'm not making one more decision today, not one. You do whatever you want. Jesus' definition of a great life is really clear if you look at the text. To Jesus, a great life is a committed life, a completely sold-out and committed life. And just in case there's any confusion about that and what that really looks like, even after all we've seen and studied in chapters 8, 9, and so far, chapter 10, at the end of chapter 10, Jesus leaves no doubt. So if you've got your Bibles open there to that passage, let's go ahead and stand together and read this scripture this morning. <clears throat> Last weekend when we were together, I preached from Matthew chapter 10, verse 16 down through verse 33. Well, this weekend I'm going to pick it up and I'm going to start in verse 32, even though we talked about that last week, and I'm going to read down to the end of the chapter, which is verse 42. You follow along. Remember, this is Jesus speaking. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, for I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives the one who sent me. Anyone who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And anyone who receives a righteous man because he is a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask for God to bless the reading and the hearing of his word. There's one single verse in all of those verses, it stands out to me above the rest. It's verse 34, where Jesus says, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. What does that mean? We're so used to thinking of Jesus as meek and mild that we might have a hard time getting a picture in our mind of Jesus wielding a sword. Why would Jesus carry a sword? Well, here's the answer in the context of these verses in Matthew chapter 10. Write this down. He carries a sword so he can divide humanity. Let me put it in even simpler terms. He carries a sword because he wants to make it clear who's on his side and who is not. Let me ask you a serious question. Do you think there are people today who claim to be followers of Jesus but really aren't? I'm not going to answer the question out loud. I don't want anybody to think me judgmental. I'll just say this. Jesus did. He believed that there were people who professed to be his followers, but in all actuality, they really weren't. You remember these words Jesus spoke toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount? This is Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 20. 
or 21 rather, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Jesus did. He made that clear right there. He believed there were people who professed to be his followers, but really weren't. Here's what the Bible teaches us. It teaches us that Jesus came into the world to bring peace with God, but that peace with God is only available to people whose commitment to Christ, whose commitment to embracing the greater life Christ calls them to is real and genuine and sincere. And that's what he drives home here at the end of chapter 10. And he does it in kind of an unusual way. As I look at the text, he does it by giving us what I would just simply call three real progressions that we can all experience in the Christian life, three very real progressions that we can all experience in the Christian life. There's no outline in your bulletin because I don't really have an outline to teach this text. I'm going to show you those three progressions, though, just by highlighting the verses. The first one is seen in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33, and if you have to write down something, you could say it begins with a confession. This is where the progression begins. It begins with a confession. Look back at verses 32 and 33. Jesus said, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. I talked about these verses last week as a part of the text. And I told you when we got to that part of the message last week, that one of the great blessings of persecution, remember Jesus told his disciples as they went out to begin their first tour of ministry, and he teaches us that when we, when we serve Christ, when we live for Christ, that we can experience persecution in the world. And I told you one of the great blessings of persecution is it clarifies our commitment. You're not going to allow yourself to be persecuted for your faith in Christ if your faith in Christ is not real. You're not going to allow somebody to abuse you because of your profession of Christianity if your profession is not real. But here he tells us that this confession is kind of the beginning of what I call three real progressions in the Christian life. It all begins with this confession. I know my NIV Bible says acknowledges me, or not, yeah, Jesus said in verse 32, whoever acknowledges me, but it's the word confesses. If you've got an older translation of the Bible, then your Bible probably uses the word confesses. In the original language, it's the Greek word homologeo. The most common meaning is to say the same thing, but it means acknowledge, profess, confess, declare, all of those things. And Jesus is teaching us that this confession, this willingness to confess Christ or express our faith in Christ, communicates that He is Lord in our life, and if necessary, not just Lord in our life, but He's also Lord in our death. It emphasizes this complete commitment. When I confess Christ, I'm confessing He's the Lord of my life, and He's going to be the Lord of my death, even if that's what it comes to. That's what we're talking about here. And so I just made myself a note here when I was working my way through the text and I wrote down in my notes, Jesus is basically saying to his disciples and in doing so saying to you and me today as we think about serving him, as we think about living for him, just how far are you willing to go with me and for me? How far are you willing to go with Jesus? 
You've probably never heard of the name Andrew White. He's been called the vicar of Baghdad because he pastored the only remaining Anglican church in Iraq until his departure was ordered in 2014, November of 2014, because they could not assure his safety any longer. Even before he left, he only spent part of his time in Iraq because ISIS wanted to murder him. When he was interviewed on American Family Radio, he said, No matter what you have heard or read about the ISIS atrocities, the reality in the Middle East is far worse. Not only did ISIS close every church in Mosul, which, by the way, is the Old Testament city of Nineveh. Anybody remember the story of Jonah? Not only did ISIS close every church in Mosul, but they have systematically destroyed every mark of the Christian faith in the territory they control. As a result, hundreds of thousands have been displaced and thousands have been brutally murdered. He went on to tell the story of four children, four Christian children, all under the age of 15, who were captured when ISIS took over their town in northern Iraq. The terrorists demanded that the children say the words of conversion to Islam or they would be killed. What would they do? And all the children, remember, all under the age of 15, said, No, we love Yeshua, Jesus. We've always loved Yeshua. We've always followed Yeshua. Yeshua has always been with us. The terrorists said, Say the words. They said, No, we can't. And White said that they beheaded all four of them. In his interview, he asked, how do you respond to that? And then he answered his own question. He said, you just cry. Now, truth is, you and I will probably never find ourselves in that kind of life and death situation, but we make decisions all the time related to our confession of whether or not Jesus is truly Lord of our lives. In fact, I think you can make the case that we make that decision in a variety of ways in our lives every single day, in a variety of ways in our lives every single day, we make some kind of confession about whether or not Jesus is everything to us or not. And so... It begins with commitment, with confession, rather. This is where our commitment to Christ begins. Our commitment to the greater life he calls us to commit begins. Then you go to verses 34 through 36, the next part of the text. And I would say then that your confession can oftentimes lead to division. Jesus goes on, hear those words once again. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Stop right there. I told you already, Jesus is the great divider of humanity. That's why he came wielding a sword. If you want a non-controversial Jesus to serve, and I think a lot of people do, you've got to look somewhere besides the Bible to find him. Because that's not the Jesus of the Bible. The gentle Jesus who came into the world in such a humble manner says of himself, I came to bring a sword. It's the beginning of Christmas time. We think about the meek and mild Jesus, the humble, simple way he came into the world. We think about the message of the angels to the shepherd when Jesus was born, to the shepherds rather, when they said, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, peace. This is what we talk about at Christmas. on men on whom his favor rests. But Jesus said, I came to bring a sword because he's the divider of humanity. 
Because the truth about Jesus, who He says that He is, and what He offers and what He calls us to, cuts both ways as you go through life. And what I mean by that is you either believe and surrender all to the reality of who He is and what He offers, or you reject Him because there's no room for partial commitment. It's one or the other. It's always been that way with Jesus. It's all or nothing. So it begins with a confession. That confession can lead to division. And then we get to verses 37 and 38, and we see that that division leads to a decision. Jesus goes on and says, Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, I'm going to be the first to say those words are difficult to read and they are difficult to hear. But what Jesus is telling us is that when it comes to our commitment to him, when it comes to whether or not we're going to really embrace the greater life he calls us to, there will be times when we have to take a second look at our loyalties and a second look at our loves and a second look at our lives. We have to take a second look at who we are and what it is or who it is that matters the most in our lives above everything else. And it's all, this is, this is, listen, this is the job description for what it means to embrace the greater life Jesus calls us to. And I'll say it again, who in the world would call that a great life? Given all that Jesus requires. And so the question becomes, What kind of life are we going to live? I'm compelled this morning, I believe, genuinely, by the Spirit of God, not to try to sound too important, but I'm compelled, I feel compelled by the Spirit of God to look you in the face and ask you this question, what kind of life are you going to live? That's the question Jesus was asking these 12 disciples back in Matthew chapter 10. That's the question he's asking all of us today. And it's a question that needs to be answered, and it needs to be answered now, not tomorrow or sometime down the road, because the truth is life is short for all of us. We don't have time to wait. In February of 2015, a woman named Emily Phillips was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Knowing that her days were short because of that diagnosis, she decided that she would do something different. She would write her own obituary. She didn't want to leave that to her children to try to piece something together about her life and go through that painful experience. So she wrote her own obituary, and it went viral on the Internet after it was published following her death in April of 2015. Diagnosed in February, died in April, same year. She was 69 years old when she died. And so her, her obituary turned out to be autobiographical, and it turned out to be sentimental, and it turned out to be pretty funny in some ways. Here's the first sentence. It pains me to admit, but apparently I have died. Later, she went on to talk about her various roles in life, her, her, her life as a, as a daughter, as a wife, as a mother, as a teacher. That was her profession as a grandmother. She wrote in detail about all of those things. And when she finished that part of the obituary, she wrote, and if you don't believe it, just ask me. Oh, wait, I'm afraid it's too late for questions. Sorry. You got to admire somebody who can maintain their sense of humor even as their life comes to an end. But the most poignant thing that she wrote 
in her obituary were these words that came at the very end. So, I was born, I blinked, and it was over. I was born, I blinked, and it was over. Now, I'm looking across the room this morning like I have in every service so far, and I see people of all ages, and I see people here who have absolutely no ability to relate to those words, and I see people here who probably think about that reality every single day of their life. You know what? If you're in your 20s today, if you're a teenager in your 20s, God bless you, you have no concept of what that looks like because life to you is all before you and oftentimes makes you feel invincible. If you're in your 30s, you're probably too busy with your life to even think about reality. If you're married and you're trying to raise small children and just keep everything together day in and day out, if you're in your 40s, I don't know, maybe every now and then that thought crosses your mind. If you're in your 50s, your 60s, your 70s, there might not be a day go by when you don't think about that reality. The truth behind that statement, I was born... I blinked, and it was over. Life is short. No matter how long we live, in the scheme of eternity, life is short. And the Bible tells us that. James writes in James chapter 4 and verse 14, and he says, What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. That's the reality of life. You want to know what that's like? Then sometime when you're at home and it's a cold day, you go to the window and breathe your breath on the window pane and see if you have time to write your name in the breath, in the mist on your window before it goes away. My guess is you might get your first name, but not your full name. And James, writing under the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that's what life is like. That's how fast life is. And so the question is, again, what are we going to do with our lives? What kind of life are you going to live in this brief period of time that God has given you. If you spend any amount of time in your life in church, you, you know who Jim Elliott was. He was a missionary who was killed along with four other missionaries in 1956 in the jungles of Ecuador by the Alca Indians that they were trying to reach. His story made headlines around the world. His story inspired countless books and films and generations of of young men and women became missionaries because of his life. His wife, Elizabeth, told the story in several books, including her bestseller, Through Gates of Splendor. More than a half a century later, we are still inspired every time we read or hear these words that were attributed to Jim Elliott. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. His story gripped the evangelical world, he is without question the most famous missionary of the 20th century. He was 28 years old when he died. He was 28 years old. But while most people know his story, most people don't know that he had an older brother who went to Peru as a missionary in 1949, and he spent 62 years serving God on the mission field there in Peru, planting 150 churches. He died on February the 17th in 2012 at the age of 87. When Randy Alcorn, who is a popular speaker and writer, 
interviewed Bert Elliott, that was his name, Bert, interviewed Bert Elliott in 2006, six years before he died, Bert described his younger brother like this. He said, Jim and I both serve Christ, but differently. And here was his description. He said, he was a great meteor streaking through the sky. Remember, he died when he was 28 years old. He said, he was a great meteor streaking through the sky. Bert Elliott, his older brother, just happened to be home on furlough when Jim and those other missionaries were killed in Ecuador. And when it happened... He said he and his wife wrestled with whether or not they should return to the mission field. And he said, I can remember asking, why doesn't God take care of us? If we give our lives to serve him, if we embrace the greater life that he calls us to, why doesn't he protect us? He said the answer that came to him became the hallmark of his own life. Here was the answer. It's in dying that we're born to eternal life. It's not maintaining our lives, but it's giving our lives. Do you remember what Jesus just said in Matthew chapter 10? He said, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's how he describes living a greater life, what it looks like and means to live a greater life. So a few months later, after Jim had been murdered in the jungles of Ecuador, Bert and his wife Colleen returned to the jungles of Purdue, or Peru. Maybe he needed to go to Purdue. I don't know. Maybe they're missionaries there. Maybe they need to boil her up in Jesus' name there. Randy Alcorn, in reflecting on his interview with Bert Elliott, described him like this. He said, Bert Elliott was a faint star that rose night after night, faithfully crossing the same path in the sky to God's glory. Remember how Bert described his brother? He was a great meteor streaking through the sky. Randy Alcorn said that his brother Bert was a familiar star, a faint star rather, that rose night after night, faithfully crossing the same path in the sky to God's glory. Two very distinct descriptions of two very different people. One who died at the age of 28 and one who died at the age of 87. Which one did the greater work? Jim or Bert? Why did one die so young and one live so long? No one can answer those questions. The answers to those questions are hidden in the mind of God. And the truth is, at the end of the day, that's okay because what matters the most is that the call of Christ is the same for all of us. Regardless of whether we spend a short time or what seems like a long time here in this world. The call of Christ is the same for all of us. Jesus calls us from the cross. But friends, Jesus calls us to the cross because he calls us to give up our lives for the greater life that he offers. And that's where you embrace that greater life, by being willing to give everything. I want you to pray with me this morning. Thank you, Lord.